Book One, Chapter One, Section Two of In the Days of the Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lewis. In the Days of the Comet by H. G. Wells. Book One, Chapter One, Section Two. Parload stood at the open window, opera glasses in hand, and sought, and found, and was uncertain about, and lost again, the new comet. I thought the comet no more than a nuisance then, because I wanted to talk of other matters, but Parload was full of it. My head was hot, I was feverish with interlacing annoyances and bitterness. I wanted to open my heart to him. At least I wanted to relieve my heart by some romantic rendering of my troubles, and I gave but little heed to the things he told me. It was the first time I had heard of this new speck among the countless specks of heaven, and I did not care if I ever heard of the thing again. We were two youths much of an age together. Parload was two and twenty and eight months older than I. He was, I think his proper definition was, engrossing clerk, to a little solicitor in Overcastle, while I was third in the office staff of Rawdon's Pot Bank in Clayton. We had met first in the Parliament of the Young Men's Christian Association of Swathinglees, we had found we attended simultaneous classes in Overcastle, he in science, and I in shorthand, and had started a practice of walking home together, and so our friendship came into being. Swathinglees, Clayton, and Overcastle were contiguous towns, I should mention, in the great industrial area of the Midlands. We had shared each other's secrets of religious doubt, we had confided to one another a common interest in socialism. He had come twice to supper at my mother's on a Sunday night, and I was free of his apartment. He was then a tall, flaxen-haired, gawky youth, with a disproportionate development of neck and wrist, and capable of vast enthusiasms. He gave two evenings a week, to the evening classes of the organized science school in Overcastle. Physiography was his favorite subject, and through this insidious opening of his mind, the wonder of outer space had come to take possession of his soul. He had commandeered an old opera glass from his uncle, who farmed at Leet over the moors. He had bought a cheap plastic planisphere and Whitaker's almanac, and for a time day and moonlight were mere blank interruptions in the one satisfactory reality in his life, stargazing. It was the deeps that had seized him, the immensities, and the mysterious possibilities that might float unlit in that unplumbed abyss. With infinite labor and the help of a very precise article in the heavens, a little monthly magazine that catered for those who were under this obsession. He had at last got his opera glasses upon the new visitor to our system from outer space. 
He gazed in a sort of rapture upon that quivering little smudge of light among the shining pinpoints, and gazed. My troubles had to wait for him. Wonderful, he sighed, and then, as though his first emphasis did not satisfy him, wonderful. He turned to me. Wouldn't you like to see? I had to look, and then I had to listen. How this scarce visible intruder was to be, was presently to be, one of the largest comets this world has ever seen. How that its course must bring it within, at most, so many scores of millions of miles from the earth, a mere step. Parload seemed to think that, now that the spectroscope had already sounded its chemical secrets, perplexed by the unprecedented band in the green, how it was even now being photographed in the very act of unwinding, in an unusual direction, a sunward tail, which presently it wound up again, and all the while, in a sort of undertow, I was thinking first of Nettie Stewart, and the letter she had just written me, and then of old Rawdon's detestable face as I had seen it that afternoon. Now I planned answers to Nettie, and now belated repartees to my employer, and then again Nettie was blazing all across the background of my thoughts. Nettie Stewart was daughter of the head gardener of the rich Mr. Verrall's widow, and she and I had kissed and become sweethearts before we were eighteen years old. My mother and hers were second cousins and old schoolfellows, and though my mother had been widowed untimely by a train accident and had been reduced to letting lodgings, she was the Clayton curate's landlady, a position esteemed much lower than that of Mrs. Stewart, a kindly custom of occasional visits to the gardener's cottage at Chexhill Towers still kept the friends in touch. Commonly, I went with her, and I remember it was in the dusk of one bright evening in July, one of those long golden evenings that do not so much give way to night as admit at last upon courtesy the moon and a choice retinue of stars, that Nettie and I, at the pond of goldfish, where the yew-bordering walks converged, made our shy beginner's vow. I remember still, Something will always stir in me at that memory, the tremulous emotion of that adventure. Nettie was dressed in white. Her hair went off in waves of soft darkness from above her dark shining eyes. There was a little necklace of pearls around her sweetly mottled neck, and a little coin of gold that nestled in her throat. I kissed her half-reluctant lips, and for three years of my life thereafter, nay, I almost think for all the rest of her life and mine I could have died for her sake. You must understand, and every year it becomes increasingly difficult to understand, how entirely different the world was then from what it is now. It was a dark world. It was full of preventable disorder, preventable diseases, and preventable pain of harshness and stupid unpremeditated cruelties. But yet, it may be even by virtue of the general darkness, 
there were moments of a rare and evanescent beauty that seemed no longer possible in my experience the great change has come for evermore happiness and beauty are our atmosphere there is peace on earth and goodwill to all men none would dare to dream of returning to the sorrows of the former time and yet that misery was pierced ever and again its gray curtain was stabbed through and through by joys of an intensity by perceptions of a keenness that it seems to me are now altogether gone out of life is it the change i wonder that has robbed life of its extremes or is it perhaps only this that youth has left me even the strength of middle years leaves me now and taken its despairs and raptures leaving me judgment perhaps sympathy memories i cannot tell one would need to be young now and to have been young then as well to decide that impossible problem perhaps a cool observer even in the old days would have found little beauty in our grouping i have our two photographs at hand in this bureau as i write and they show me a gawky youth in ill-fitting ready-made clothing and nettie indeed nettie is badly dressed and her attitude is more than a little stiff but i can see her through the picture and her living brightness and something of that mystery of charm she had for me comes back again to my mind her face has triumphed over the photographer or i would long ago have cast this picture away the reality of beauty yields itself to no words i wish that i had the sister art and could draw in my margin something that escapes description there was a sort of gravity in her eyes there was something a matter of the minutest difference about her upper lip so that her mouth closed sweetly and broke very sweetly to a smile that grave sweet smile after we had kissed and decided not to tell our parents for a while of the irrevocable choice we had made the time came for us to part shyly and before others and i and my mother went off back across the moonlit park the bracken thickets rustling with startled deer to the railway station at checkshill and so to our dingy basement in clayton and i saw no more of nettie except that i saw her in my thoughts for nearly a year but at our next meeting it was decided that we must correspond and this we did with much elaboration of secrecy for nettie would have no one at home not even her only sister know of her attachment so i had to send my precious documents sealed and under cover by way of a confidential schoolfellow of hers who lived near london i could write that address down now though house and street and suburb have gone beyond any man's tracing our correspondence began our estrangement because for the first time we came into more than sensuous contact and our minds sought expression now you must understand that the world of thought in those days was in the strangest condition it was choked with obsolete inadequate formula 
it was torturous to a maze-like degree with secondary contrivances and adaptations suppressions conventions and subterfuges base immediacies fouled the truth on every man's lips i was brought up by my mother in a quaint old-fashioned narrow faith in certain religious formula certain rules of conduct certain conceptions of social and political order that had no more relevance to the realities and needs of everyday contemporary life than if they were clean linen that had been put away with lavender in a drawer indeed her religion did actually smell of lavender on sundays she put away all the things of reality the garments and even the furnishings of every day hid her hands that were gnarled and sometimes chapped with scrubbing in black carefully mended gloves assumed her old black silk dress and bonnet and took me unnaturally clean and sweet also to church there we sang and bowed and heard sonorous prayers and joined in sonorous responses and rose with a congregation sigh refreshed and relieved when the doxology with its opening now to god the father god the son bowed out the tame brief sermon there was a hell in that religion of my mother's a red-haired hell of curly flames that had once been very terrible there was a devil he was also ex officio the british king's enemy and much denunciation of the wicked lust of the flesh we were expected to believe that most of our poor unhappy world was to atone for its muddle and trouble here by suffering exquisite torments for ever after world without end amen but indeed those curly flames looked rather jolly the whole thing had been mellowed and faded into a gentle unreality long before my time if it had much terror even in my childhood i have forgotten it it was not so terrible as the giant who was killed by the beanstalk and i see it all now as a setting for my poor old mother's worn and grimy face and almost lovingly as part of her and mr gabitis our plump little lodger strangely transformed in his vestments and lifting his voice manfully to the quality of those elizabethan prayers seemed i think to give her a special and peculiar interest with god she radiated her own tremulous gentleness upon him and redeemed him from all the implications of vindictive theologians she was in truth had i but perceived it the effectual answer to all she would have taught me so i see it now but there is something harsh in the earnest intensity of youth and having at first taken all these things quite seriously the fiery hell and god's vindictiveness had any neglect as though they were as much a matter of fact as bladden's ironworks and rawdon's pot-bank i presently with an equal seriousness flung them out of my mind again mr gabitis you see did sometimes as the phrase went take notice of me he had induced me to go on reading after i left school and with the best intentions in the world and to anticipate the poison of the times he had lent me burble's skepticism answered and drawn my attention to the library of the institute in clayton 
the excellent burble was a great shock to me it seemed clear from his answers to the skeptic that the case for doctrinal orthodoxy and all that faded and by no means awful hereafter which i had hitherto accepted as i accepted the sun was an extremely poor one and to hammer home that idea the first book i got from the institute happened to be an american edition of the collected works of shelley his gassy prose as well as his atmospheric verse i was soon ripe for blatant unbelief and at the young men's christian association i presently made the acquaintance of parload who told me under promise of the most sinister secrecy that he was a socialist out and out he lent me several copies of a periodical with the claimant title of the clarion which was just taking up a crusade against the accepted religion the adolescent years of any fairly intelligent youth lie open and will always lie healthily open to the contagion of philosophical doubts of scorns and new ideas and i will confess i had the fever of that phase badly doubt i say but it was not so much doubt which is a complex thing as startled emphatic denial have i believed this and i was also you must remember just beginning love letters to nettie we live now in these days when the great change has been in most things accomplished in a time when every one is being educated to a sort of intellectual gentleness a gentleness that abates nothing from our vigor and it is hard to understand the stifled and struggling manner in which my generation of common young men did its thinking to think at all about certain questions was an act of rebellion that set one oscillating between the furtive and the defiant people begin to find shelley for all his melody noisy and ill-conditioned now because his anarchs have vanished yet there was a time when novel thought had to go to that tune of breaking glass it becomes a little difficult to imagine the yeasty state of mind the disposition to shout and say yah at constituted authority to sustain a persistent note of provocation such as we raw youngsters displayed i began to read with avidity such writings as carlyle browning and hine have left for the perplexity of posterity and not only to read and admire but to imitate my letters to nettie after one or two genuinely intended displays of perfervid tenderness broke out towards theology sociology and the cosmos in turgid and startling expressions no doubt they puzzled her extremely i retained the keenest sympathy and something inexplicably near to envy for my own departed youth but i should find it difficult to maintain my case against any one who would condemn me altogether as having been a very silly posturing emotional hobbledehoy indeed and quite like my faded photograph and when i try to recall what exactly must have been the quality and tenor of my more sustained efforts to write memorably to my sweetheart i confess i shiver yet i wish they were not all destroyed 
Her letters to me were simple enough, written in a roundish, unformed hand, and badly phrased. Her first two or three showed a shy pleasure in the use of the word dear, and I remember being puzzled, and then, when I understood, delighted, because she had written Willie Ashthor under my name. Ashthor, I gathered, meant darling, but when the evidences of my fermentation began, her answers were less happy. I will not weary you with the story of how we quarreled in our silly youthful way, and how I went the next Sunday all uninvited to Chexhill and made it worse, and how afterwards I wrote a letter that she thought was lovely and mended the matter, nor will I tell of our subsequent fluctuations of misunderstanding. Always I was the offender and the final penitent until this last trouble that was now beginning and in between we had some tender near moments, and I loved her very greatly. There was this misfortune in the business, that, in the darkness and alone, I thought with great intensity of her, of her eyes, of her touch, of her sweet and delightful presence. But when I sat down to write, I thought of Shelley and Burns and myself, and other such irrelevant matters. When one is in love, in this fermenting way, it is harder to make love than it is when one does not love at all. And as for Nettie, she loved, I know, not me, but those gentle mysteries. It was not my voice should rouse her dreams to passion, so our letters continued to jar. Then suddenly she wrote me one, doubting whether she could ever care for anyone who was a socialist and did not believe in church, and then hard upon it came another note with unexpected novelties of phrasing. She thought we were not suited to each other. We differed so in taste and ideas. She had long thought of releasing me from our engagement. In fact, though I really did not apprehend it fully at the first shock, I was dismissed. Her letter had reached me when I came home after old Rawdon's none-too-civil refusal to raise my wages. On this particular evening of which I write, therefore, I was in a state of feverish adjustment to two new and amazing, two nearly overwhelming facts, that I was neither indispensable to Nettie nor to Rawdon's. And to talk of comets? Where did I stand? I had grown so accustomed to think of Nettie as inseparably mine, the whole tradition of true love pointed me to that, that for her to face about with these precise small phrases towards abandonment, after we had kissed and whispered and come so close in the little adventurous familiarities of the young, shocked me profoundly. I... I and Rawdon didn't find me indispensable either. I felt that I was suddenly repudiated by the universe and threatened with effacement, that in some positive and emphatic way I must at once assert myself. There was no balm in the religion I had learned or in the irreligion I had adopted for wounded self-love. Should I fling up Rawdon's place at once, 
and then in some extraordinary swift manner make the fortune of Frobisher's adjacent and closely competitive pot-bank. The first part of that program, at any rate, would be easy of accomplishment. To go to Rawdon and say, you will hear from me again, but for the rest, Frobisher's might fail me. That, however, was a secondary issue. The predominant affair was with Nettie. I found my mind thick-shot with flying fragments of rhetoric that might be of service in the letter I would write her. Scorn, irony, tenderness, what was it to be? Brother, said Parload suddenly. What, said I, they're firing up Bladden's ironworks, and the smoke comes right across my bit of sky. The interruption came just as I was ripe to discharge my thoughts upon him. Parload, said I, very likely I shall have to leave all this. Old Rawdon won't give me a rise in my wages, and after having asked, I don't think I can stand going on upon the old terms any more. See? So I may have to clear out of Clayton for good and all. End of Book One, Chapter One, Section Two